This morning's reading is taken from Acts chapter 4, starting from verse 8 through to the end of the chapter. Listen for the word of God. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called into account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together and prayed to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Amen. You shall be my witnesses, says Jesus. We've been speaking about this a a little bit as we've gone through Acts, how we complicate that and we wonder how do we witness and we ask how are we trained for that, equipped for that. The simple answer is that to be a witness is not to win an argument or to have a clever debating point, it's simply to be willing to speak about what we've seen and heard like witnesses in a court do. They're not clever lawyers. They're simply saying, this is what I know to be true. This is what I have experienced. And so, as the disciples witnessed to what they had experienced about Jesus, we are called to be witnesses as well. 
Well, what we find in chapter 3 and more so in chapter 4 is that opposition begins to build to that. Jesus has said, be my witnesses and tell people. And along come a bunch of authorities. And louder and louder begin to say, silence. We don't mind what you believe. We don't mind what you do in a closed room. But you must not proclaim in public this message of Jesus. There'll be consequences. If you want an easy life, if you want left alone, then be quiet. Do not speak about Jesus. We today don't have authorities that tell us what we can preach or what we can write. Well, for the most part. But I suspect we all recognise that cultural pressure that's there unspoken in so many situations. We can go to church, we can read our Bibles, we can do all these things, but don't talk about it. Don't embarrass yourself. Don't embarrass other people. Don't say things that folk don't want to hear. Don't challenge them. Just be quiet. The sad thing, I think, in our culture is that increasingly, when we've got the voice of Jesus telling us to witness and we've got the voice of the world telling us to be silent, is that we end up looking the world in the eye and saying, Yes, sir. Why did the authorities ask Peter and John and the others to be silent? What was it about? In those days, the temple authorities were in the hands of a group called the Sadducees. They were sort of rich priests, a sort of aristocracy of Jerusalem. They kept in with the Romans and um, didn't rock the boat and kept the temple running. And they had some fairly distinct beliefs, which would have meant that they didn't like everything that the disciples were saying. They didn't believe in the resurrection. In fact, they didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe that there was a Messiah coming. They thought the Messiah had probably already come. The thing about Sadducees, as one witty friend said to me, is they were sad, you see. And you can laugh at that if you like. So the disciples might have had all sorts of things that they were saying that the Pharisees didn't like. But I think there was something more fundamental than that. It wasn't really a theological argument. It was simply this. Caiaphas and his friends had killed Jesus. The same priests, the same temple authorities had been in cahoots with the Romans and had led to the crucifixion. And here were people talking about Jesus. And that explicitly was saying they were wrong. Fundamentally wrong. And if the disciples were right and Jesus had risen from the dead, if Jesus really was the cornerstone that they'd rejected, that God was now going to build the whole of the future of his people on, then they would have had to repent. They would have had to change their ways. I think that's pretty fundamental to why people don't want to hear a message today. It's not just that they don't believe it. It's not just that it's different. It's that actually the gospel, when it is proclaimed, isn't just an intellectual claim. It is a claim that Jesus is Lord of the world. It's a claim that there is a right and there is a wrong. It's a claim that we do things that are wrong, that we need to repent, that we need to be changed, that we need to know him. And that is what people find uncomfortable. But then, as Christians, I think we should have some understanding of that because it's not just people who aren't Christians who are left feeling uncomfortable we often are left feeling uncomfortable ourselves 
When somebody talks about, say, climate change, we can nod and agree and sign a petition. But what when it comes to actually asking us to change how much we drive or fly or the petrol we use? That's uncomfortable. When someone talks about poverty, we can get very upset about it. But what if it comes down to us sharing more? When we talk about the need to improve our our social um, services, we can all agree on that. Rich people should pay more tax until somebody suggests that maybe we should pay more tax. The point is this, messages that actually ask us to change are the hard ones, not just messages that ask someone else to change. And the gospel, if it's really heard, both for believers and for unbelievers, is a call to change. It's a call to recognise that we have rebelled against God. It's a call to give our lives back to him. It's a call to surrender to Jesus Christ, who is God's instrument of salvation. He is the Lord of the world. And that's hard. The disciples, however, were bold. They heard the call to be silent, but they had that greater call to witness. And so they kept witnessing and that left the authorities scratching their heads. I I love the two things that that seem to confuse them in in, in verse, I think it's verse 17. Let me just double check that, verse 17. They are confused, verse 13 rather. They're confused by two things. First of all, they're confused by the people having such courage. You know, they've got the whole weight of the, the establishment down on them and they keep speaking. How do they have such courage? And secondly, they're confused because these are unschooled men. They're not rabbis or lawyers. They're not trained in how to win arguments. And yet they just keep boldly speaking about Jesus. They're excited by him. And as they see that, they recognise that these are men who spent time with Jesus. I think today we want to live in a way that the world looks at us and sees the same thing. It doesn't see clever people. It doesn't see folk who have got knocked down arguments. It doesn't see folk who have got every answer. It just sees people who have got the courage to have lived with Jesus and that shaped who they are and what they say. Do we have the courage to do that? What I want to look at um, for the rest of this time is what gave the disciples the resources to live like that for Jesus? The first clue I think we find is in verse 23. It says that they went back to their own people and they shared what had happened. The Christian fellowship was the launchpad for the power that they had, for the resources that they had to be completely different in the world. If you read through the book of Acts, and I'd encourage you to do that, you'll see in chapter 2 and chapter 4 little pictures of how wonderful the church was. Sharing and caring and learning and breaking bread together and growing, being in one another's homes, that deep fellowship. But it wasn't just that, it was also a springboard to begin to live differently, not just in church, but in the whole of life. Is church like that for us? We're longing to be gathering again. But it's a good question to ask ourselves, why are we longing for that? Is it just we like the building? Well, this week you're going to hear good news. You can come in to the building for prayer. And that's good. 
for private prayer. But I think we're big enough to know it's not really about a building as much as we might like it. Is it about a service that we enjoy? Is it about seeing our friends again? Those things are good and, and, and we look forward to them, but it needs to be deeper than that. You see, real Christian fellowship, that word we used last week in Greek, koinonia, the common life, isn't just that we enjoy it, but it is that it becomes the springboard for us to live differently, to live for Jesus. The book of Hebrews says, chapter, I'm going to have to check this, chapter 12 and verse 25, it says, do not give up the habit of meeting together, as some people are doing, but instead encourage each other more and more. You see, what that writer is saying is that it's really important to meet together, not the building or the service, but the meeting together, but it's for a purpose. It's to encourage one another, to give one another courage, boldness, to live differently for Jesus, to be all out for Jesus. That is the really important bit. And I hope that as we begin to meet together as believers, that we begin to work out how it is that we use our life together to live differently for Jesus, to encourage one another. But the second thing that we learn from this chapter that they did is they didn't just gather together they began to pray. Let's have a look at that, shall we? Verse 24 says that they began to pray. The interesting thing is that they didn't come in, as we often do in prayer, with a shopping list. Oh Lord, we've got these horrible authorities. Will you change their minds? Will you give us boldness and give us strength to to carry on? Rather, they started with God. Sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth. Read it, verse 24. Sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth. It was worship. We come with the same words sometimes when we sing. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation, immortal, invisible, God only wise. Or simply, our God is a great big God. Reminding ourselves who God is as we come to pray because it changes everything. We remember that it isn't the authorities or the culture that's in charge of things. It's God. The word that's used for sovereign Lord here is despotes in Greek, and it literally means the one who has power. A slave would use it of his master, a servant of a king. The one who has power. It's important because the person who seemed to have power at the moment was Caiaphas and the Romans and the folk who were making the threats. And that might well have shaped the disciples as they obeyed those powerful voices, but they were coming and reminding themselves that the one who had power was actually God. It's very important that, that we remind ourselves who has power. We pray every time that the kingdom might belong to the Lord. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When we pray that prayer, we're actually saying, may the kingdoms that seem to rule this world, the politicians, the corruption, the injustice, the culture, May all that change. May all that be removed. May all that go that your kingdom might come. It's also a very personal prayer. Because if we're going to pray that God's kingdom, God's reign would come, it surely has to start with us. They went on to pray, not only was God creator, but they began to pray, O Lord, O Lord, you also spoke through the prophets, through David. 
they quote Psalm 2. And if you read Psalm 2, you'll see that Psalm 2 is all about God looking down on the kings of the earth, strutting their stuff and laughing because he's going to put his Messiah in charge. Jesus in charge of the world isn't just a theological claim. It actually should affect the way that we live, the things that shape us. The Greek expression, Jesus kurios, is Jesus is Lord. And we use that as we join the church. You're asked, do you know Jesus as your saviour and as your Lord? But you see, originally that wasn't just a religious claim that Jesus was Lord and not Zeus or something else. Because kurios, sorry, Jesus kurios actually sounded awful like Kaiser Curios, which is what the Romans said when they said Caesar is Lord. The Christians responded, no he's not. He's not Lord of the world. He's not in charge. He doesn't have our allegiance. Jesus is Lord. It was a very public political claim, a dangerous one. So they remind themselves that Jesus is Lord. And as you look on in this prayer, the next thing that they remind themselves in prayer is that, you know, there was Pilate and Herod and the temple authorities, the people who seemed to be in charge, and they did the worst thing possible, the disastrous thing, they killed Jesus. But even in that disaster, God was in charge, God had planned it, God was raising him from the dead. You see, ultimately, everything is in God's hands. And that begins to shape and to change the way that we think and the way that we act. How do we learn to pray like that? Well, very practically, I I would suggest, see, when you start to pray, don't necessarily begin with the list of things that you want or need or other people need. Maybe begin the way the Lord's Prayer does. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Reminding yourself of who God is. We're encouraging folk just now to do the prayer course and the links to that course are, and its videos are, 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 are on the email you'll get and we'll put it on the link below and various other places as well. Have a look at it. it. It really is encouraging us to pray with a relationship with God, thinking about God, not just thinking about our needs. And that is quite transformational. I like the way this passage ends, though. It ends by saying that the room began to shake. Now if you're filming this, that would be a a brilliant cue for some special effects. But the meaning is quite deep. In the Bible, when things shake, it's usually because God's turned up. He who shakes the heavens and the earth, says the book of Hebrews. God shakes things. God is the one who shakes and shapes the earth. Those disciples probably felt quite shaken by what was happening, by the threats, by the bullying, by the the potential violence that was around them. And yet they were being reminded that God shakes things, God shakes us. I wonder that there are things just now that are shaking us, external things. Things that are going on in our lives, in our families. Things that are going on in our society, the fact our building's closed and we've got a virus threat and all these other things that shake us. They shape us. They'll change us. 
but to allow as we come before God that he shakes us he shapes us he changes us that as we encourage each other and as we grow together as we learn to pray together as we begin to see and reshape our minds so that we begin to see who is in charge of this world after all that we might not be a people who are shaken but a people who are shaken by God that as we go out into the world we might be people who in his name as we witness to him and as we witness to the Jesus Christ who is Lord of the world who is the only other name the only name by which we might be saved that we might begin to shake and to shape the culture around us as we are the witnesses to Jesus Christ who leads us in doing just that Amen
the computer shop people are talking about the computer shop the people come and come and come and come and come you know we've got the whole neighborhood the establishment down and they keep talking and so they have such faith Thing 
Unfortunately, things can veer from the inside of a second wind. Oh, yes, we've got these terrible authorities, these stupid hands. Will you give us room if you give us space to, to carry on? Well, I respect the dissent. Those who love, who need harmony, do the best on the floor. Those who love, who need heaven and earth. It's not true. Please come in the same words sometimes when you sing. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation, the immortal, invisible God in the world. Well, simply, our God is a great big God. Remind yourself who God is as we come to pray, because it changes everything. You remember that it isn't the authorities or the cultures which inspired the song. It's God. The word that's used for sovereign Lord here is despotism, in Greek, and it literally means the one who has power. The phrase would use the word as master, Father or the king, the one who has power. It's important because the person who seems to have power the most is Caiaphas and the Romans and the folks who were making the song. And as they well spoke, the disciples, as they obeyed, gave powerful voices. But they were coming and reminding themselves that the one who had power was actually God. Very important that we remind ourselves who has power. We pray every time that the kingdom might belong to the Lord. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What is so actual or actually true? Those are kingdoms that seem to rule this world. The politicians, the corruption, the injustice, the culture. May all that change. May all that be removed. May all that go. That your kingdom might come. That's a very personal prayer. But if we're going to pray that God's kingdom, God's reign would come, it surely has to start with us.
and circumspectly, I think. So the meaning of Sabbath in the Bible is that there's peace. It's usually because God is coming. And if he speaks, the heavens and the earth say the book of Hebrews. God speaks to us. God is the one who speaks and speaks to us. These disciples that we saw first speaking by the returning, by the threats, by the bullying, by the, the potential violence that was around them. And yet they were being reminded that God speaks to them. God speaks to us. I wonder what there are things beside God speaking to us. External things. Things that are going on in our life, in our family. Things that are going on in our society. Perhaps our bowling scores when we get the virus were upset. And all these other things, it's speaking. It's speaking. We're seeing it. But here we are, as we come before God, that He speaks. He speaks. He changes us. That as we encourage each other, as we grow together, as we learn to praise together, as we begin to see and reshape our minds so that we begin to see He is in charge of this world and all of people who are speaking, but a people who are spoken by God. That as we go out into the world, that we might be people who in His name, as we witness to Him and as we witness to the Jesus Christ who is Lord of the world, who is the only other name, 